Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. In this episode, we will be celebrating the communion, otherwise known as the table of the Lord, or even sometimes the Eucharist. But before we get started, let me say a few things. In this ministry, we do things a bit differently than you may be used to. In most Christian churches around the world, there's a lot of tradition that goes along with this celebration. And let me say, by the way, that includes those independent evangelical churches who like to proudly claim to be tradition-free. We, in this ministry, like to keep it simple. We follow our Lord's instructions, and we handle ourselves in a scriptural manner while we celebrate. Now, let me explain, and this is all you'll need to know to celebrate with us. Let me begin with some scripture, always my favorite place to start, Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here in Matthew 26, we find the authorization, if you will, for the bread and the cup, collectively known as the elements. So when you celebrate the communion, you are to have a set of the elements for everyone participating with you. That is, you'll have some bread, and a cup with something to drink. Those are the elements. Now, although we are not going to get too hung up on the details of the elements, here are some guidelines. First, the bread. Now, forget tradition. I know some of you are used to the little round wafers that are given out in some churches. Now, I'm not a big fan of that, but I don't want to get into why I'm not a big fan of that, into what I'm calling this mini-lesson. Plain old bread is fine. That's what scriptures say Jesus used, so there's no reason to be too elaborate. However, having said that, let me say that when we in this ministry partake, we use unleavened bread. You maybe know unleavened bread as matzah or matzo or matzo crackers. The reason why we use matzo crackers or unleavened bread is because we can be certain that's what Jesus ate that night. The story of what we today call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper 
took place during the celebration of Passover and all devout Jews, and trust me, there was no Jew more devout than Jesus. All devout Jews ate only unleavened bread during the celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples, you can be sure, only had unleavened bread on their table that night. So we use unleavened bread when we partake in the communion. Now you may ask, is it a sin to eat leavened bread during the communion? Bread that has yeast in it. Is that a sin while celebrating the communion? Well, in my opinion, no. And the, the, the devil and the church, they want us to worry about that. They want us to overly worry about that, but let's not. Remember, the whole point of the communion is to remember him, not just some silly list of ingredients. Let's just make a decision on the type of bread and then go with it because it's just bread. Again, tradition may want to tell you something different, but it is just bread. The important part in all of this is what the bread represents. And Jesus told us what that is. Quote, I'm reading from scripture again. Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So that's the bread. It's a symbol of his body, the body he gave up for us. So what's next? Matthew 26, 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here is where there's been a sustained battle for centuries. Again, our aim in this lesson is not to argue, fuss, and fight. So, let's just keep this simple by again telling you what we believe and the manner in which we partake. First of all, at our communion celebrations, there are two elements. Now, some church tradition doesn't stress the two-element thing. Some church tradition says that all you need is the bread, but that's not what Jesus said. And so, we have both elements, the bread, which we've already discussed, and the cup. Now, what about the cup? What should be in it? Well, as we just said, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends when all of this took place. So we can be relatively certain that the cup he chose to share was one of the ritual cups of the Seder, which is the traditional, highly ritualized Passover meal. We've covered the Seder in previous lessons. And if you remember that lesson, you'll know that there are ceremonial cups of wine. So most likely there was a cup of wine, and I use that term loosely, there was a cup of wine at the table, and that was the cup that Jesus used. That's why most of the time when you do receive the cup at communion, there's wine in it. However, it's 
not unusual to be in a church that simply uses grape juice and even sometimes water. Now, let me state my position on this. It's exactly how I feel about the bread. I don't believe it matters what's in the cup, so don't let the contents of the cup distract you. You are celebrating a memorial with symbols. That's what the elements are. They're symbols. Now, down through the centuries, again, I will say this has been hotly debated, and we're not going to reopen that debate here. In this ministry, we use, listen to me, plain old fruit juice, either grape or cherry. Now, don't let that fact cause you to judge my stance on the use of alcohol. My feelings about alcohol have nothing to do with our choice of this communion element. This is why we use non-alcoholic fruit juice. This is listen to this. In order to produce alcohol, some of you know you will most likely use a type of yeast. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification. Please don't email me and write me letters trying to straighten me out about the fermenting process. Most commonly, fermentation of alcoholic beverages involves the introduction of yeast. Now, yeast is leaven, and since there is to be no leaven whatsoever in the homes of devout Jews during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way, which follows the Feast of Passover, because there was no leaven in the homes at that time, during that celebration, we believe that Jesus probably didn't hand out alcoholic wine. Alcoholic wine is technically leavened grape juice. Now, can I state that categorically? Can I categorically say that Jesus did not hand out wine? No, it doesn't say. And what do I say every time the Bible doesn't say something about something? It's not important. But I will say, as I did before, I don't think you're sinning if you do things differently or think things differently than we do when it comes to the contents of the elements. Once again, I say you decide what you use and then put, listen to me, put the whole matter out of your mind. Which leads us to the last very important issue we'll discuss with regard to the communion. This time let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself. The King James says, let a man examine himself. This is the revised version. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. Now for many centuries, there has been fear 
around this table, and that eventually fear gave way to apathy. First, we feared the table of the Lord. Then we didn't care. That's where we are now, where people don't care. And neither of those two states is acceptable. Let's cover the fear. Now, to be honest, I get it. I understand the element of fear. The above passage that I just read is rather ominous. It speaks of being guilty of something. It speaks of judgment. There are, these are things that you and I and every clear-thinking Christian shrinks from. We don't want to be guilty. We don't want judgment. We want to do things right. And then throw in the very next verse, For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep, meaning die. Throw that verse in, and then you have a full-scale panic every time the pastor says, Time for communion. No! Do we really think that's what Jesus intended when he left this for us, for us to be fearful when we come to the table? Now, we can, and we have spent entire lessons on this, but let me set your mind somewhat at ease. Paul is saying that if we drink, eat and drink unworthily, now that word is an adverb, unworthily, that's why I keep saying it like that, unworthily is an adverb. Adverbs describe actions, not actors. This is not unworthy, this is unworthily. Adverbs describe an action. Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, then you're risking those things that he mentioned. The judgment. Being guilty. If you partake in an unworthy manner. Now, I don't want to go into too much depth here about what those things are that he says you're risking, because the point of this lesson is to go over how to make Jesus happy when you celebrate the communion. In this lesson, we're not focusing on anything other than what God expects out of us. Because frankly, if we do what he asks, well, then it won't matter what happens to us when we do otherwise, right? God says to eat and drink in a worthy manner, so let's just do that. Well... What does that mean? Fortunately, Paul tells us, and he tells us in plain, easy language. Paul says that the unworthy manner is eating and drinking, not discerning the Lord's body. The unworthy manner is when you don't discern the Lord's body. A worthy manner, therefore, is discerning the Lord's body, right? Does that make sense? Now, you, maybe you're saying, well, what does discern mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at Webster's. Now, this is important. This is important to get to the basics, not only to avoid those negative ramifications of not eating and drinking worthily, but also because this sweet little celebration was given to us by someone we love, right? He told us to do this, and we love him. If you're 
dear granny asked you to take your shoes off in the house, you'd do it because you're because she's your sweet granny and you love her and you want to please her. You don't ignore granny, at least I hope you don't. You don't sit there and, well, should I take my shoes off or shouldn't I? I mean, how important is this? Is granny going to smack me in the back of the head? Is that really what you think about? Granny asked me. I love her. I'll do what she says. Why would this be any different? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You're going to find out in a moment that remembrance and discerning are the same thing. Now, according to Webster, to discern means to come to know or recognize mentally. It's that simple. That's the definition of the English word discern. It also sounds, well, pretty close to the word remembrance, don't you think? Real quick, Webster says, remembrance means the state of bearing in mind. Same thing as recognizing something mentally. They mean the same thing. Jesus wants you to remember him, to discern him, discern what he did for you when you go to the table. Now, one more time, forget for a moment what happens to you if you don't and just concentrate on how this is simply a request from someone we love. Jesus wants you to remember him. Listen, if we concentrated more on this, whatever this is as a relationship, this church thing, this Christianity, if we concentrated more on this being a relationship between two people, a lot of the silliness goes away. We cloud it with tradition. We, we make it foggy with all the silly things that we do and think and say. It's a relationship. You can get to the true meaning and intention of things if you just realize this is a relationship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, I love you. That's what I'm going to do. Yes, there are things that can happen to me if I don't do that. Forget about that. Jesus said to do it. I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to remember him. He wants us to think about him. Now, whenever I take communion in a church, which is not very often, church is not a good place to concentrate on the things of God, and I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. Church is not a good place to go if you want to concentrate on the things of God. Now, most churches, there are some churches, sure. Most churches, no. Tell me, honestly, does it look like anyone is concentrating on Jesus at communion in church? Again, maybe some, but not very often, unfortunately. And that's partly why we celebrate communion with you through this ministry, either over the radio or through our web stream or now through these podcasts. We want you to have some control over your discerning environment. So when you partake, and the lesson again, I want to tell you, the lesson that follows this little intro is one in which we go to the table of the Lord. And I'm suggesting to you that if you want to partake, once we get to the communion in this lesson, I'm going to tell you it's not, it doesn't happen right away. 
It happened sometime during the lesson. This was previously recorded a couple of years ago. Sometime in that lesson, we go to the table of the Lord. And if you want to partake, then I suggest that you find somewhere quiet and without distraction so that you can commit your full attention to discerning and remembering. So let's wrap this up. It's already gone far longer than I had intended it to do. The lesson that follows contains a communion celebration, and if you want to join us, and you don't have to, you can just listen to the lesson, you can listen to the communion and how we do things, you do not have to partake if you listen, just listen, but if you do decide to partake, here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, this is a wrap-up, this is a summary. Number one, have a set of the elements, that's the bread and the wine, for each person who will be participating with you. The bread will symbolize the body, and the cup will symbolize the blood. You, and what's in the cup? It can be wine, it can be juice or water. The one that will be in front of me will have juice. Number two, make sure you are in a place where you do not have any distractions, at least for the few minutes that we will be sharing together at the table of the Lord. Turn off your phone, put the little ones to bed, put the dogs upstairs, draw the curtains if you have to, just find a quiet, peaceful place so you can remember him. You got all that? The table of the Lord is one of the most lovely experiences we can have as members of his church. We will be getting into a communion message in just a few moments. The table of the Lord is a lovely celebration. If we do it right, without fear and without distraction, it can be something you look forward to time and again. Just make sure you show Jesus the respect he deserves and partake of the communion as he commanded, as he said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, what's the big deal about taking communion? Why do we make such a big deal out of it? And why did Jesus make such a big deal out of it? Well, our actions reflect our attitude. But more than that, listen to me, our attitude in our actions reflect who we are. Genesis 4.3, And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. 
This is one of the best known and frankly, most debated stories in all the Bible. It brings to mind that age-old question, why one and not the other? You know, recently I read a brief transcript of the Larry King live show that featured an interview with Joel Osteen from a few years back. As you know, Larry King Live is no longer on the air. This show happened a few years ago. Now, from what I read in that transcript, it seemed as if all Larry King was interested in doing is baiting one of God's ministers. Now, you can think what you want to about Joel Osteen. I am not going to debate him here. But the fact remains that Joel Osteen is the pastor of a church. He is, to the world, a representative of Christian leadership, and it really doesn't matter whether you think he is or not. To Larry King that night, it was clear that Osteen was to take the witness stand for Christ. Perhaps you've seen that interview. Perhaps you read that transcript as I did. My opinion of the whole thing was that it seemed obvious that Larry King intended to trip up Mr. Osteen in an attempt to undermine the belief system of Christianity. Now, you may have gotten a different opinion. That's fine. But from what I saw, Larry King was on the attack. Now, this is the same guy, by the way, who once said that he felt that the only reason religion exists is because people fear death. On another occasion, he declared that he was, get this, probably an atheist. How's that for courage? Probably an atheist. That night, Larry King attacked that which he feared, and he did so under the guise of a legitimate interview of a well-known Christian. It had all the earmarks of a biased attack, all of the same leading questions designed to get someone to declare a truth that the world refuses to accept in an attempt to weaken the world's opinion of the church. The interview went like this, Mr. King says, We've had ministers on who said your record don't count. By the way, this is verbatim. I'm sad to say this is one of America's most well-known journalists, and he doesn't seem to understand grammar very well. We've had ministers on who said your record don't count. You either believe in Christ or you don't. If you believe in Christ, you you are, you are going to heaven. And if you don't, no matter what you've done in your life, you ain't. Then Joel Osteen did a poor job in response, but that's not important to the discussion. After Joel Osteen's response, Larry King then asks, again in a very nefarious way, what if you're Jewish or Muslim? You don't accept Christ at all. Again, Joel fumbles around for an answer, and he gives another poor one, in my opinion. But I want you to notice 
the disapproving tone coming through. But you know, Larry King is not unique. In fact, he's representative. Like Joel Osteen is representative, at least to Larry King, to the representative of the Christian world. Larry King is representative of the world. He's just reflecting the general mindset. You see, for some reason, the world thinks that God should meet its approval. The world is constantly putting God through some sort of job interview. You see, most people will only worship a God of their own choosing. And if they can't find one, then they'll just simply make one. Or simply do without, as Larry King says he's done. Let me give you a bit of news. Let me give all of us a bit of news. God is not hard up for friends. God doesn't feel it's necessary to answer your questions or meet your approval. God does not find us worth changing his ways for. He'd rather suffer personal loss than bow down to our concepts of divinity. Listen, whether you like it or not, whether you approve of it or not, God's in charge. We don't get to make the rules. For some reason, we get a little annoyed that God has chosen to keep us out of the loop. We don't like that. So we start doing things our own way. And he's given us the freedom to do that. But then when things start going south for us, we want to blame God. We get mad at him. We get wroth. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now this passage is really rather interesting. First of all, it's interesting because of its ability to show us the true nature of the human condition. But secondly, it's interesting because it's so simple. Now, there are lots of sub-lessons, if you will, that we may touch on, but let's deal with these two first. I know that sometimes the King James versions of these stories are a bit difficult to follow because of the high-sounding and sometimes antique language being used, so allow me to summarize. The two sons of Adam are Cain and Abel. You know that part. Cain is obviously a farmer of sorts. Genesis says he's a tiller of the ground. And Abel is a shepherd. Now, each of the sons brings an offering to God. Now, before I go too much further, I want you to see how important offerings are. It's obvious 
even all the way back to the beginning of mankind's relationship with God, that presenting an offering was a regularly expected thing to do. Now, we aren't really sure what the nature of that expectation was. We, we can be sure that there wasn't anything like the written law yet, the written law that governed the deeds of men. We know that didn't exist yet. But I believe, based on the narrative to this point in Genesis, that God was somehow directing the actions of these first people at least part of the time. Now, how he did that, I don't know. But I think we are safe to assume there were certain things that God did expect out of his creation. And although this is not a scripturally based opinion, my guess is that obeying God came natural to those first humans. It was their first response to what God says. When God said something, their first action was to obey. And I believe that our true nature yearns to please God, our basic nature. And we want to do what he tells us. For many of us, it's what burns inside of us if we let it. That's what God's creation wants to do. I mean, let's look around. Every one of God's other created things follow God's plans for them without question. I mean, the earth rotates exactly as God wants it to, and it does so with such dedication and reliability that we know, for example, to the minute when the sun will appear on the horizon. We know, for example, the exact moment summer begins. We know when the next eclipse will begin. Flowers never neglect to respond to the coming spring, and Canadian geese always head south when the weather gets cold. There's never a conflict outside of mankind between what God wants and what nature does. It follows his ideals. It's, perhaps you can say, burned into the DNA. Humans, again, in my opinion, have that same desire in our base nature to do as God wants. But what makes us different is that we've been given the power to resist that part of our nature. And it's when we resist that, when we resist that nature, that's when things go badly for us. And it all stems from this. We've been given a characteristic that sets us apart from all other forms of life, unlike plants and trees and fish and livestock. We're self-aware. Now, it's not my intention to give you a philosophy lesson today, but the human species is the only created being that's conscious of itself. And it's 
conscious of its environment and it's conscious of its own place within that environment. And because of that, we concern ourselves with how that environment affects us. For example, at the moment, we know that the world is getting warmer and that puts not only us as a species, but as us as individuals at risk. We know about that and we're concerned about it because we know that events outside ourselves impact us. Now, by contrast, the honeybee is not aware that for some reason their populations are dropping to critical levels. They don't know that. They keep on going, doing whatever they do in blissful ignorance of the danger. They continue on as if nothing is at all any different in their lives today than it was the day they were born because bees are not self-aware. But we are. And unfortunately, being self-aware aware leads to being self-interested. Because we are cognizant that whatever happens around us can either help us or hurt us, we very often take action to try to manipulate the results. Sometimes our actions are motivated by survival and sometimes our actions are motivated to seize the opportunity that's given to us by those outside forces. Now, all of this might be called free will, and it is a gift from God. And as I said, it does make us the most unique created being that we know of. It makes us both special and dangerous, in my opinion, because even though our base desire is to please God, sometimes we want to do that in such a way that, well, frankly, works out best for ourselves. And that's what's on display in Genesis chapter 4. Both Cain and Abel made an offering of the produce of the sweat of their brow. We can assume that. Abel made an offering from the flock, and Cain made an offering of the field. Now, we aren't given a lot of details here. The entire story of Cain and Abel lasts barely eight verses. From the birth of Cain to the death of Abel is only a little more than 160 words. And yes, I did count them. Now, commandments of God are a, a funny thing, especially to the democratic so-called free world. And this is particularly true of Americans, but we in our societies don't really like being told what to do. So when we hear the word commandment, we kind of shrink back. We kind of get a feeling of repulsion. But I don't think we should. 
You see, our back to our base nature. We should be delighted to do what God asks us to do if we love Him and we want to make Him happy, as we claim we do. But some always find a way to do things that present the greater benefit for themselves. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. The word means angry. And his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance falling? Why are you frowning? What's making you so upset? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? If you do things as you're supposed to do, there's no reason to get your feelings hurt. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Once you start doing things your way, Sins at the door. And Cain talked with his with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Continuing with our summary, but now with a little more comment. It says in the process of time. That just means the end of days. Now that's important for you to know. Because the way the original is structured, it gives us the impression that this was the end of a schedule, a set number of days. There was a boundary, end of days, something specifically marked out that has a beginning and, as it says here, an end. In other words, at the conclusion of a certain set-aside number of days. Now, this way of stating things speaks, as I said, of something scheduled. It's set aside. Now, I'm pointing this out so that you can see that there appears to be a defined process for the delivering of the sacrifices. That's important for you to know. There was a time in which to bring the offerings. That was understood. There must have been a way of doing this. That's what we're told when we read the original at the end of days, at the end of a set number of days. Now, not only do we know that through the end of days, but there's a something more that tells us that. Verse 4 says that Abel brought the firstlings of his flock and Cain brought the fruit of the ground. And then we are told that God respected the sacrifice of Abel and did not respect the sacrifice of Cain. Now, the word respect maybe is a little misleading to our modern ears. The NIV states it maybe a little bit better. It says that God looked favorably on Abel's sacrifice, but did not look favorably on Cain's. In other words, God approved of one 
and did not approve of the other. Now, we don't like that. We live in a society that looks down on God for choosing. Remember our opening discussion about the thoughts of Larry King? He didn't like the fact that God says some can go to heaven and some can't. He doesn't like that. He doesn't approve. Now, he's not alone in that mindset. We think that God shouldn't have any qualifications or rules. Now, you and I wouldn't let just anyone in our home, would we? Someone knocked on the door and said, I'd like to stay here for a year. Would you just let him in and say, okay. Why do we think God should let everyone into his kingdom? Our modern attitude is everything is okay. That's our attitude towards religion, not to ourselves personally. We say religion should allow everything in. There should be no right or wrong, good or bad, favorable or unfavorable. Well, in this, like so many other things, God's ways are not man's ways. God doesn't accept everything, whether you like it or not, whether Larry King likes it or not, whether Joel Osteen is good at articulating that or not doesn't matter. It just is. To God, there's a right way to do something and a wrong way to do something. He approves of the right way and disapproves of the wrong way, and that's that. Now, you may be saying, well, how do we know which one is going to get his respect? That's the easiest of all questions to answer. You see, the right way is how he says it's to be done. And that's what gets his respect. And the wrong way is anything that goes against or is different in any way than how he says it should be done, and that he rejects. It's that simple. That's the entire record of God's relationship with his people. Do it my way, and I'll approve it and bless it. Do it your way, and I won't. In fact, it goes a little further as evidenced here in Genesis 4. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offerings. Something else happens. The Lord not only had respect for the way Abel did something, but he also had respect, remember it just means approval, God had approval for Abel himself. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Skipping down to verse 5, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. We see here that God approved neither of the offering nor the offerer. Your attitude in your actions tell God who you are. 
When we do the things the way God tells us to, he not only looks on our ways, but on our person with approval. When we decide to do anything, any other way, God holds us responsible. Now, John, aren't you taking just a little bit of poetic license here? Let's see. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. I shouldn't have to say this. But God makes it clear that we do have a hand, so to speak, in how things work out for us. God told Cain, hey, don't get mad at me. If you do what you're supposed to do, you won't find yourself in an unpleasant position. This is so difficult to understand. Don't speed and you won't get a ticket. Pay attention and you won't get higher insurance rates. Don't drink too much alcohol. Some, including me, say any at all. Because that kind of thing leads to health problems. Don't complain that you can't walk up the steps from the train if you have a cigarette hanging out of your mouth. If you want things to work out for you, do them the right way. If you want God's blessing on your life, do as God has told you. He has more interest in you having success in the kingdom than you do. He lays out perfectly what you need to know. He's taken the guesswork out of a right relationship with him. Cain, if you presented the sacrifice as God had told you, then God would have approved of it. You know how we know? He approved of Abel's sacrifice and Abel. Again, we don't have the details. Some people say that, that only meat sacrifices made God happy. That doesn't matter. What matters is, is that there was an obvious way to do things, and Cain decided to do them differently. And even after God had told him, listen, just do what you're supposed to and everything's going to be okay. After God told him, if you do well, then you'll be approved. If you don't do well, you won't be. Even after that, Cain decided to ignore God and he went out and made things much worse. And listen, this is a religious thing. Some people think that no matter what you do, as long as you claim you're doing it for God, it should be okay. I'm blowing up that abortion clinic, God, because I'm doing it for you. I beat the pulp out of that gay man for you, God, and you should approve of it. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. The more I do this, the more I become shocked at how far we've drifted from the true table of the Lord. You know, as we said early on, we really don't have any record of God giving instructions on the offerings to the sons of Adam. Cain, I suppose, could have pled ignorance. That's not possible with us. That's not possible with the table of the Lord. The steps we're to follow when we take communion are all right there in 1 Corinthians. You want me to lay them out? Here we go. Step one, take the bread, remember Jesus. Step two, take the cup, remember Jesus. It's all right there. And yet, we get it wrong all the time. Constantly. Consistently. It's clear that we've gotten so far off track. It's so bad, listen to me, that doing this the biblical way seems absolutely foreign to even lifelong Christians. People that participate with this on this with us on this program. People that participate with us on this program have said, I've never taken communion this way before. And these are people who've been going to church most of their lives. But once again, this is apparently not at all new. Shockingly, by no more than probably 30 years after that original night in the upper room, Paul had to step in and make some corrections. We resist our base nature to do as God tells us to. We want to look better. We want it to be fancier. We want to feel something. We want the organ playing in the background when I'm doing an altar call. Makes people feel all emotional. Just a moment ago, we read from what we now call the first letter to the Corinthians. Just a few verses down from what we read, we see that Paul had to admonish the members of the church in Corinth for taking what he called unworthily. And because he's a good pastor, he defines what he means while at the same time explaining the outcome. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Listen, there is no excuse for any deviation whatsoever. This couldn't be any clearer. Again, maybe... Cain had a little, I don't know, wiggle room. I didn't know about that. Wiggle room. But we sure don't. Why do you think I go to such lengths to get you to be reverent when we partake? 
If you learn nothing else from me, make sure you let this settle in. God demands your respect at this table. And you know why? Because it is God's intention to always make sure we honor what his son went through, not only for you and I, but for the father himself. Step one, take the bread, remember Jesus. Step two, take the cup, remember Jesus. Only two steps. And we've managed to screw it up. And listen, this is not something to mess with. Listen to me. From the beginning, God has shown that he expects full compliance. This is not a place that you want to deviate. Verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. John, does that mean I can lose my salvation? No. God will not take that from you because that too would dishonor his son and what his son went through. God will not, listen to me, God will not turn his back on your salvation once we accept it, but I can tell you, you won't enjoy it if you're disobedient, especially disobedient at the table that God holds so dearly. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Let me explain the word damnation real quick. It means temporary punishment. We'll get into that one of these days. It's krema. Permanent damnation is katakrama. It's krema. It means temporary. It means God puts you through things to wake you up. Many are weak and sickly among you. He didn't say sick. Sickly among you and many sleep. He's going to get your attention. And I don't want that to happen to you. Firstly, because I love you. Secondly, because I'm responsible for you. The minute you sat down today to listen to this program, I became responsible for you. I'll answer for you if I get this wrong. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. This, listen, the letter to the Corinthians is one of the oldest documents known to the church. It's more than 2,000 years old, but you would think the church has never seen it. Have you ever been to a communion service in a church? In most places, it, I'm sorry, resembles a circus. Listen to this. Now, somebody actually sat down and counted all this which is the first amazing part. But tell me if you don't see this as a deviation from the simple laid out two-step plan. Speaking of the priest at the mass, somebody says he makes the sign of the cross 16 times, turns toward the congregation six times, lifts his eyes to heaven 11 times, 
kisses the altar eight times, folds his hands four times, strikes his breast ten times, bows his head twenty-one times, genuflects eight times, bows his shoulders seven times, blesses the altar with the sign of the cross thirty times, lays his hands flat on the altar 29 times, prays secretly 11 times, prays aloud 13 times, takes the bread and wine and turns it into the body and blood of Christ, covers and uncovers a chalice 10 times, goes to and fro 20 times. Step one, take the bread, remember Jesus. Step two, take the cup, Remember Jesus. I can't speak for you, but I want God to be happy with me. I don't know about you, but I want to honor Jesus. Because he once said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I love him. So I pick up the bread, and before I partake, I'm going to make sure that I start meditating on what he did for me. He said that the bread represents his body, which was broken for me. In my mind, I'm discerning that. I'm thinking about the beating he took. It's not pleasant to think about a beating, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't pleasant to take it either. You know, we're told that those Roman soldiers in charge of guarding our Lord decided to play a brutal game with him. They placed a blindfold over his eyes and they took turns punching him in the face and then said, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? It was cruel, it was inhumane, and it was designed to inflict pain, both physical and psychological. It was certainly unnecessary. It was certainly unwarranted. And you know, he just sat there and took it. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, the words he used long before the event, he said, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And you know what's really heartbreaking to me? Is that he got nothing out of enduring that cruelty? I mean, sometimes we can put up with a lot if in the end we somehow benefit personally. That beating did nothing but rearrange his face. That sweet little baby that once lay in the manger is now a grown man who's barely recognizable. His face is swollen, he's bruised, he's bloodied, but not one bone broken, which is pretty amazing. He put his body through unbelievable torment as payment for you and for me. And I will not dishonor his pain and his suffering by discerning anything else. So with that, as he asked me to do, I take the bread and invite you to as well.
And as I do so, I discern the body that was mightily beaten and suffered for me. I tell you all the time, it took a life and a death to save you and me. A perfect life also represented in that bread and a perfect death as represented by the fruit of the vine that's in this cup. The cup represents his blood. But why blood? I mean, why did his blood have to be shed? Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. When blood is shed, death results. When Jesus established this ceremony, he instructed us to include the symbol of the blood, and that's why we have this cup. Cain got himself in trouble when he decided to change God's program. You know, for years and years and years, the Catholic Church decided that it wasn't necessary to have the people take the cup. Did you know that? They figured that it was only necessary for the priest to do that. It's as if someone said, sure, we know what Jesus commanded, but you know, we talked it over, we thought about it, we decided we'll just do it our way because it works out better for us. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. As long as I am still God's choice to run this ministry, we will do things as he says to do them. To ignore the blood is changing God's instructions. To even consider skipping the cup means you're missing the point. The blood was proof that life had ended. We needed that life to end before God could be able to welcome us back in. And the only way we can be sure of that is the token of the blood. Just like the Israelites applied the blood of the slain lamb on the doorposts as a sign of obedience that night in Egypt, we honor and apply that perfect death to our miserable experience. As I lift this cup, I'm discerning, as he told me to. I'm imagining his life pouring away out of those horrible wounds. The blood streaming down his face, reaching the earth to cleanse it. This cup represents my entrance into a total and complete fellowship with Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. I take it now in that knowledge, and I thank Him for it. Please join me. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. 
Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.